If you open your Bibles to Psalm 145, Psalm 145, the book of Psalms is right in the very middle of your Bible. Then turn to number 145 after that. Psalm 145, verse 8. This is a, a psalm or a hymn of David, David the great king and type of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, writes this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verse 8. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in faithful love. The Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. Would you pray with me briefly? Uh, Father, we ask now that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word that we might behold the light of the gospel, of the glory of Jesus Christ. Please bless us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, yesterday, the world got to watch the funeral of Prince Philip, husband of Queen Elizabeth of England. And Anglophiles or people just intrigued by royalty were treated to much, not all, but much of the pomp and ceremony that England could muster for a funeral in a COVID era. Of course, the mood was somber and funereal, and so not matching the the joy uh, of a royal wedding, but it was still an impressive display of royalty and majesty. And I don't know about you, but of particular interest to me was the recitation of Philip's titles. Here's just a portion of what was read. The late most illustrious and exalted Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, Earl of Marianneth and Baron Greenwich, Knight of the Most Noble Order of the Garter, Knight of the Most Ancient and Most Noble Order of the Thistle, Member of the Order of Merit, Knight Grand Cross of the Royal Victorian Order, upon whom has been conferred the Royal Victorian Chain, Grand Master and Knight Grand Cross of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, Lord High Admiral of the United Kingdom, one of Her Majesty's Most Honorable Privy Council, Admiral of the Fleet, Field Marshal in the Army, and Marshal of the Royal Air Force. And that doesn't even include the titles associated with him being husband to the queen. Nor does it include the titles that Philip gave up in order to marry Elizabeth. Can you imagine this poor guy's business card? <laughs> it's just incredible, right? I mean, so it's, it, it's quite a display of majesty that we got to see yesterday. And in the best of times, in the best of times, we're intrigued by royalty because there's a gravitas. There's, there's a weightiness that attends royalty. The titles, the clothing, the attendance, the splendor. We, we, we almost automatically associate majesty with, with greatness. Wouldn't it be great to be king? Great to be royal, Right? And it's true, because, because greatness does, almost by definition, attend majesty. But does goodness, does goodness attend majesty? In our text this morning, Psalm 145, it, it, it's a psalm that celebrates the majesty of God. 
And, and the declarations of kingly royalty are impressive. But surprisingly, surprisingly, the psalm celebrates something that we don't often associate with royalty. So this morning, if you're here, you're watching on the live stream, maybe you don't understand yourself to be a Christian. I would invite you to consider this psalm. Ask yourself, which would be more important in a God? Greatness or goodness? But what if the God preached from this pulpit and in Psalm 145 is actually both great and good? What would that mean for you? For the rest of you, you're, you're here listening. You do understand yourselves to be Christians. What ought your response to be to a God who is absolutely great but whose greatness is rivaled only by his goodness. In fact, his greatness is tied up in his goodness. So our our big idea this morning is this. Our God is supremely and uniquely worthy of praise because he is both great and good, wholly other and tenderly near to his people. So that's the big idea. And and let's just unpack this. We're going to work our way through the psalm. In in verses 1 and 2, we see a call to praise God. David writes, I exalt you, my God, the King, and bless your name forever and ever. I will bless you every day. I will praise your name forever and ever. And so here, David recognizes God to be not just a king, not just the king, but but his king. And, And David is committed to extolling God, not just for the moment, but forever and ever. Because in David's estimation, this is a God whose worthiness, it doesn't wane with time. He's not a God with an expiration date. He's not a God whom he might one day grow bored with. But why? Why would he think this? Who is this God and and why is he worthy of such adulation, such eternal adulation? Well, the rest of the psalm is committed to explaining why God is worthy to be praised. And we find out first that God is great. God is great. He is the transcendent God. Look at verses. Well, let's, well actually, let's think about what, what David's going to praise God for. And it's this. God is supremely worthy to be praised because he is transcendent, holy other, high and lifted up beyond all. So now look at verses 3 and then 5 and 6. Verse 3, the Lord is great and is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Let's pause there just for a moment because we see here that God is praised for his greatness. But, but what is greatness, right? Okay, so I teach theology at Western Seminary and maybe you're thinking I'm going to give you some strange theological definition of what greatness is. No, I'm not. (laughs) Greatness is what you would expect. It has to do with being large and significant and imposing. It has a lot to do with abundance. In the scriptures, a great river is enormous. A great army is formidable. A great God is awesome. 
So greatness, if you were to take a class from me, it's, it's usually not listed as one of the attributes of God. Like love or compassion or power or knowledge. But when God is extolled for his greatness, he's being praised for something that we call the transcendence of God. The transcendence of God. Okay, so what do I mean by that? To say that God is transcendent means that he is wholly other than us and anything else. He is the great God who rules over all that he has made. He's, he's powerful and strong. He's fearsome. Fearsome. Transcendence usually speaks to God dwelling on high, in heaven, far from sin, high over creation. Transcendence speaks of exaltation. In, in particular, transcendence speaks to God's majesty and his holiness. And we've seen that throughout the Revelation series, right? God is awesome, terrifyingly great. Well, there is no one like the Lord. And in our passage, we see that the greatness of the Lord is unsearchable. That means that it can't be quantified, right? It's, it's too large. Even if you had a measure for greatness, you know, units, and, and there was like a tape measure or something, the tape measure could not possibly be long enough to measure the greatness of God. No way that we could plumb the depths and assign a quantity to who God is. The Lord is the creator, not the creation. And he's so radically different than his creation that there is nothing that compares to him. The closest thing we find in the scripture to God is humans who are made in his image. And we don't compare at all. To try to compare the Lord to anything is foolish. And, and at some point, language breaks down. There, there are no words to describe the unfathomable greatness of God. And yet, as we see in this psalm, David's going to give it a try anyway. He's going to give it a try. As, as we're going to see, David is going to recount the works of the Lord. These works are, are mighty God is strong, powerful. God always has all that he needs to accomplish anything that he wants to do. He is absolutely independent. He's the self-sufficient one. He has no needs. And even if he did, he wouldn't come to us. We read that in other Psalms. God says things like, if I were hungry, if, if I were hungry, I wouldn't come to you. Right? Uh, people always are under the misunderstanding that we're here to serve God because he has needs that only we can meet. And, and, if, and if we don't meet those needs, then God is somehow lacking in some way. But, but a strong biblical truth that just kind of slaps us in the face is that God is the independent one and he actually doesn't need us at all. He's the self-sufficient one. After God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. He destroyed the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. Moses and Miriam sang this, this famous duet. I'm, I'm sure we'll be able to hear it in heaven, right? Famous biblical duets. But, but listen to what they sing. Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? 
course, this is a true rhetorical question. The answer is no one. No one. No one is like the Lord. Again, some of you might have witnessed the royal funeral yesterday. There was pomp and circumstance. But as impressive as all of that was, it pales in comparison to all that attends the Lord. God does not just reign in majesty. His majesty itself is glorious. That's to say that his majesty, the majesty of God, is weighty. There's, there's a gravitas that attends everything about the Lord that's just palpable. If we could somehow at this very moment be transported into the throne room of God and be in his presence to see him as he actually is, I don't think we would survive. I don't think we could survive. Our current bodies, our hearts would stop, our lungs would fail, nothing would go right. Maybe that's why the resurrection has to precede the judgment. Because no one could stand in the presence of God physically as we are now. We're going to need a new resurrection body just to survive the very presence of God. Have you thought about that? Verse 4 reads this way. One generation will declare your works to the next and will proclaim your mighty acts. I will speak of your splendor and glorious majesty and your wondrous works. They will proclaim the power of your awe-inspiring acts and I will declare your greatness. Here David gives a call to declare the greatness of God to others. But did you notice that David's praise is directed? His, his instruction is that one generation will declare God's good works to the next. Friends, our, our praise of the Lord's mighty works plays a vital role in the lives of others, in the lives of you and me. Why? Because we give testimony in our praise to the mighty acts of God to one another as both a praise and as a witness. So it seems to me that we ought to make our praise public. There's, there's a, pray, a place for private devotions and private praise, certainly. I'm not denying that. But I think more than anything right now, I think the world, our country, our, our city, it needs to see and hear public proclamation of the wondrous works of God. I think people need to see God's people devoted to him, trusting in his good promises, believing that he actually has his hand on the wheel right now. Science or something that falsely masquerades as silence and intersectionality have become the gods of this age and, and their priests demand obeisance. Woe to the one who refuses to bow the knee and mouth their liturgies. Excommunication occurs in the form of canceling and, and the price is high. So join us on Sunday mornings. I'm literally preaching to the choir at this point, right? Join us on Sunday mornings. It's important that we assemble as a body, with the body. And of course, 
Take the precautions that are recommended by the church. Do what your conscience allows, but, but come. Come whenever we gather. And, I mean, and, and, of course, be telling your unbelieving friends of the mighty works of God. But don't just tell them. We need to be telling each other as well. I don't know that you, you contemplate this a lot, but one of the great things about Henson Church is that we are an intergenerational church. We literally have people ranging from newborn to octogenarian and beyond. And I need to hear from those who have walked with the Lord longer than I have. And I need to hear from those who are younger in the faith as well, because that keeps me going. Your presence and your words are testimony to me that God keeps his promises. I love singing with the body. And I have a voice made for a very, very large choir, right? So (laughs) something to kind of drown me out, right? But I love as I'm singing, hearing everyone else sing because it encourages me that I'm not in this alone that God's promises are real and you give testimony to that fact. And it is a deep encouragement to me. God is indeed great. He's worthy to be praised. A lot of you know that, that, that my wife was uh, on chemotherapy and, and, and was pretty sick for about seven, eight months to a year. And those, those cards and, and those letters that were sent to her were such an encouragement to her not that they had to be full of flowery speech, but, but, but even just the, the, the strategically employed biblical passages that reminded her of the faithfulness of God. And, and I've told everyone this many times, or as many as you as, as will listen to me, that, that throughout that illness, because of the way that Henson rallied around and encouraged us through praise and proclamation, I have never in all my life been more convinced that Jesus got up from the dead than I was during that time. And it was because of people like you, right? Small groups are, are, are wonderful. Let me give you an example of how this works at ours. We have Lily Haug and, and Allie Jim, and, 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 and they give up a Thursday night to, to hang out with much older people, right? But they give it up, and they discuss with us the mighty acts of God. Margie and Jason Saddam, I, I, they, they work all day. They're tired, but they still show up to encourage and, and, and to delve into the unsearchable greatness of our Lord. And, 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 and Carol Wood, who is of an, an, a generation that's a little older than me, she faithfully comes to give testimony to the splendor and majesty of the king. I think this is what David was talking about. One generation tells the other, and it builds our faith and it builds our confidence and our hope. See, here's the thing. God can only be praised forever and ever if the next generations hear of and come to know God. You've, you've probably heard it said that Christianity is only one generation away from becoming extinct. And I think that's overstated because Jesus is sovereign, right? He's got his hand on the wheel. It's not going to go extinct. But that statement is frightfully true in this sense. The church marches victoriously into the next generation by virtue of our confession, not our birthright. Right? 
You become a member of the church through confessing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not by spending time in the nursery as a newborn downstairs. Right? Does that make sense? No one automatically becomes a Christian. You're not reborn by virtue of parentage. Each person must hear the gospel in time and space and respond in time and space to that gospel message. And, and friends, that, that gospel message, it, it's, it's not a sales pitch. It's not a gimmick. It's a proclamation of the mighty acts of God to save sinners, just what David is talking about here. It is a god praising proclamation of the wondrous work of Jesus Christ in going to the cross on our behalf. It's, it's the God-exalting proclamation of the awe-inspiring act of raising Jesus Christ from the dead. So speak of those acts to one another and to our neighbors, just like David told us to do. It's a good thing. Well, we've been looking at the greatness of God, but then in verse 7, things shift. Verse 7. They will give a testimony of your great goodness and will sing joyfully of your righteousness. You notice there's a bit of a shift here in the psalm. Begins a bit of a transition in David's praise. And it's here that things get really interesting and simultaneously wonderful at the same time. God is praised here for his great goodness and his righteousness. Now, Goodness and righteousness, these are not the attributes of transcendence, of the one who is high and lifted up. They are the attributes of what we call eminence, eminence, the nearness of God. Eminence refers to God's nearness. Therefore, in contrast to transcendence, where God is wholly other and he is so radically different that he dwells on high, eminence stresses God's involvement with us. And with creatures, his intimacy with people, his touch, his care, his concern. Eminence extols God who dwells, I'm sorry, transcendence extols God who dwells on high. Eminence celebrates the God who comes down to dwell with his people. So God is supremely worthy to be praised because he is imminent tenderly near his people. When we speak of the God who is near, we speak of the God who sees, the God who hears, the God who heals. I love this story. It's chronicled twice in the Old Testament, once in the prophets, once in the history of of King Hezekiah, who's, who's been given basically a death sentence. And Isaiah comes to him and says, prepare your house, put it all in order because this illness you have, it's going to lead to your death pretty quickly. Hezekiah is broken and he cries out before the Lord. And and before Isaiah can even make it out of the palace, he receives another vision, another word from God. Go back to Hezekiah and tell him this. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. I will heal you. Behold the imminent God, the one who sees and hears and heals. It's the testimony of the Bible and the psalm in particular that God is good. 
He's good. But what does that mean? What does that mean? To say that God is good means that he is benevolent. He's benevolent. God acts for the benefit of others. And let's, let's look at what that means as we work through the rest of this psalm. Verse 8. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. Well, here, David quotes Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. That, that, that strange passage where, where Moses, I don't know, he, he must have been feeling pretty good because he tells the Lord, show me your glory, right? And then God does that strange thing where he says, okay, I will. And then he hides him behind a rock and then he kind of parades before him. And we, we don't have any visual description of what it looked like. But we hear the words, show me your glory. What does God do? He responds by proclaiming the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And so Moses, show me your glory. And and this is what he hears from God. This is what makes God glorious, at least in his economy. And it's tied more, isn't it, to to just resplendent majesty or or some transcendent qualities. You know, you, you would have expected, show me your glory. And you would hear thunder and lightning. And there would be light, dazzling light and jewels and all sorts of awesome things. And Moses would fall to the ground. But instead, he just hears about the goodness of God, the kindness, the compassion, the grace. So we learn that God's glory is tied to more than just his resplendent majesty, these transcendent act qualities. In God's estimation, he is great precisely because he is good. God is glorious because he is gracious, compassionate, patient, abounding in love. God is gracious. That's, that's to say that God grants goodness and kindness to sinful people when God has nothing to gain by being kind. Right? When God shows grace to you, it's not because he's getting something awesome in return. He gets you in return. Right? And me. And me. If you didn't note that, I was making fun of you a little bit. But it was a profound theological truth at the same time, right? There is nothing in it for God in terms of what you bring to him, but he's kind to you anyway. That's what grace is. We're told that God is compassionate. It means that he's moved by or to kindness through mercy and through pity. When, when God feels compassion toward you, he is moved to move toward you to do something to move in action we see that all through the gospels right why did jesus heal people why did he heal people well there's surely a host of reasons but the one that we hear over and over again moved by compassion moved by compassion when jesus saw a need in in our english today we would say his heart went out to them in the greek (laughs) It's his bowels moved. 
<laughs> which doesn't, you wouldn't put that on a Hallmark card, right? Um, but, but he felt it. He saw the need and it, he felt it in his gut and, he, and it motivated him to move. That's what compassion is. And this is who God is, right? It's, God is patient. That's to say that he's long-suffering. Our God... It's, now, try this one on for like a, a super powerful praise. Our God is the God who waits. <laughs> that doesn't sound all that awesome, does it? Our God is the God who waits. But it is an awesome truth when you consider how holy God is, how righteous God is, and how sinful we are. And yet God stays his hand. He is the God who waits and waits and waits and waits. According to Jesus, do you know why judgment doesn't come? As, I mean, as much as we yearn for God stepping in to make everything right, as much as we yearn for the consummation of the kingdom of God, in, according to Jesus, do you know why that judgment doesn't come now? As much as we might like it? Mercy, compassion, long-suffering. Because when Jesus returns... That's when the patience is done. God is the God who waits. And that makes him wonderful. And then, of course, we're told in that verse of God's faithful love. His faithful love, it, it translates that famous Hebrew word chesed. It's, it's often defined as loving kindness or covenant love or loyal love. It means that when God makes a promise to love a people, he stubbornly keeps loving that people. It's, it's like blood love in the sense of blood is thicker than water. It's, it, it almost could be stupid love, right? Like a mother or a father's stupid love for their children, regardless of how unworthy they are of that love. And don't we all need someone who just stupidly loves us? But God does. Why? Because he made a promise to love his people. And he will faithfully keep that promise regardless. Regardless of what we do. You might be thinking, Todd, did you just say that God has stupid love? Um, yeah, in context. In context, right? All right. Let's, as we read through the rest of this psalm, we can see all the many ways that God draws near. Verse 9, the Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. Verse 10, all you have made will thank you, Lord. The faithful will bless you. Skip to verse 14. The Lord helps all who fall. He raises up all who are oppressed. All eyes look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all of his acts. I'm not sure that, that, that you understand how incredible what we just read actually is. We're so used to this kind of language that we almost take it for granted, right? God loves you. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course he does. That's his job, right? That's his job. God is good. Well, of course, by definition, right? But, but what other God is like this? A God who is both transcendent and imminent? That's unheard of in the pagan pantheon of gods. A God who is both high and exalted? 
who also stoops down to care passionately for his people? Who else but our God is like this? Our God is both transcendent and imminent. He is both great and good. Two examples of this. First one from a story. And I like it because I get to say beaver from the pulpit here. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When, when Susan is going to meet Aslan for the first time, finds out he's a lion. She's a little scared. Aslan's a lion. The lion. The great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Children's story, transcendence and imminence. Of course he's not safe, transcendence, but he's good. He's the king, imminence. That combination of transcendence and imminence is all through the Bible. And it's one of the many things that separates the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, from all other contenders and pretenders to the throne. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 10 and 11. Listen to this. See, the Lord God comes with strength and his power establishes his rule. His wages are with him. His reward accompanies him. That's the language of transcendence, the high one, the terrifying one. Behold your God, he comes. The very next verse, verse 11, he protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing Friends, we should marvel and delight in this great God who is simultaneously transcendently great and imminently good. What this means is that he is not merely one who sees our hurt, uncaring from on high. It means that he sees our hurt and is moved by compassion and then has all of his greatness to bring to bear on the situation. If, if God is moved by compassion to help, there is nothing on heaven or on earth that can keep him from acting. If God is committed to patience, there is no power or authority in heaven or on earth who can get him to act before he wants to. We have to delight, we must delight in the God who is both transcendent and who is also imminent. The God who is high and lifted up, who also stoops down to answer the prayers of his children. And if this is the case, then, then our prayer life ought to reflect that. God is transcendent. We should be reverent. We should be reverent. But we should be bold in our requests. Because God is the one who hears. We ought to never waver in doubt or unbelief that God has what it takes to care for us. Because he is great and he is good. We, we might not know what his good intentions are. But we never ought to doubt that they are good. I mean, look at... At our text, what we just read, he lifts up the oppressed. He helps those who fall. God is the good and benevolent provider. Christian, 
Every single thing that you have, good thing that you have, comes from the hand of God, who has lavished you with blessing upon blessing. And, and maybe right now, maybe right now, you're feeling like, I, I just don't feel like I've been lavished with blessing upon blessing. I understand. I, I get it. I mean, this is, this is not the most encouraging of times that we're going through. But remember what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? What is that saying? It's saying that at great cost to himself, God has already provided for your greatest need. The rest is easy. The rest is easy. And why would he give you something that cost him so much and then hold back something that costs him virtually nothing? He won't. For those who don't understand themselves to be Christians, you need to understand that God is still good despite what you're seeing in this world. According to the scriptures, every good thing that you have, even those things that you worked for, are a generous gift of the benevolent God who loves you, causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Every breath that you take Every morsel of food that passes your lips, every beat of your heart is a gift from a generous God. So all of us, believer, unbeliever alike, we ought to respond with thanksgiving. Now I've already said God is the self-sufficient one. He's the independent one, right? He, He doesn't need your thanks. But according to the testimony of the Bible, he wants it. He desires it. Christian, are you self-consciously thankful? Or do you sometimes fall into the trap of believing, well, yeah, God saved me, but now the rest is up to me. I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. David confessed here that the faithful bless the Lord, that all should thank the Lord. It's an act of your faithfulness to give thanks to God. Those of you, again, your prayer lives maybe aren't what they should be. You you try to pray. You you, you can't think of what to say. Well, rehearse the blessings of God in your life and thank him for all that he's done. Remember the old hymn or song, Count Your Blessings? Isn't that kind of corny? I I thought you taught theology. Yeah, I do. There's really good theology in this kind of corny song. It goes, so amid the conflict, whether great or small, do not be discouraged. God is over all. Count your many blessings. Angels will attend. Help and comfort give you to your journey's end. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. Let's go back to verses 11 through 13. I I skipped those. It reads this way. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom and will declare your might. Informing... All people of your mighty acts and of the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule is for all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all of his actions. Here in verse 13, we have that fusing of greatness and goodness again. The God who is the awesome king. His dynasty is unparalleled. It is unthreatened. This God is simultaneously faithful 
and gracious. And here we learn something vital about the kingdom of God. The kingdom is and will forever be what it is like because the king is who he is. For David, the the kingdom was a distant hope. For us, though, who look back on the first advent of Jesus Christ, that kingdom has already begun. But what was true for David is surely still true for us. The kingdom of God is what it is, and it will be what it will be because God is who he is. That is, the kingdom partakes of the character of the king. And that's really happy news for us. That is really, really good news because our awesome, transcendent God who is high and lifted up, terrible in power and wonder, is simultaneously the eminent God who is moved by compassion, full of grace, and committed to loyal, faithful, covenant love. So we would expect then that the kingdom of God will be full of mercy, compassion, grace, and faithful love. And and we might think, well, when I think kingdom of God, I think things like power and glory and other transcendent things. And, And surely those will come. But remember how the kingdom began with the Lord Jesus Christ. It was characterized by these near, the God who is near attributes of grace and mercy and compassion and faithful love. Jesus Christ, who is king of the kingdom of God, presented himself not as a king resplendent in glory, but a king who draws near in humility and compassion. And Jesus introduced himself this way. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Behold your king. Jesus is a gentle king and he is good. That that goodness manifested itself throughout his ministry in grace, compassion, and mercy. Jesus did come to build a kingdom, but to build it on the foundation of all that he is in both his transcendence and his eminence. He is, after all, the eternal Son of God, the second member of the Trinity. But he did not come as a conquering king on a stallion of victory, but he entered our existence as a small baby born in the most humble of circumstances. Transcendence, eminence. This is our God and King. Jesus came not demanding obeisance and servants, but he came healing and feeding others. That humility took Jesus Christ all the way to the cross where he would die the humiliating death that we deserve. And he did so willingly out of love for God the Father and out of love for us. But don't be fooled by the shame endured at the cross. Remember, Jesus is simultaneously almighty God possessing all of those high and lifted up attributes. Death could not hold him and he rose triumphantly from the grave. 
And that brings us to the last few verses. Look at verse verse 18. The Lord is near all who call out to him. All who call out to him with integrity. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry for help and saves them. The Lord guards all those who love him. But he destroys all the wicked. If you're not a Christian, you need to understand that the nearness of God comes with a sharp edge. Because God is near, the wicked are deluding themselves into thinking that they're going to get off scot-free. God is near. He's watching and he is great. He's able, ready, willing to judge. And if God is everything that this psalm says that he is, then how could he not judge? In fact, his judgment is an expression of his righteousness. The hope of the cosmos rests in the character and goodness of God. And when we look at the state of things in this world, the hope of the cosmos, really, it rests in the judgment of God. I mean, a world where everything continues as it is, it cannot endure before a holy God. But he's patient. And if we really knew what we wanted, we wouldn't want this world to endure. The moral confusion in our current world is heavy. The moral rebellion is even heavier. A renewed world, the kingdom of God, must have judgment. And it starts with each of us. But our holy God who judges in transcendent glory is still merciful and he's a compassionate king. He's near and he invites you to repent. He will destroy the wicked. Make no mistake about that. But while you can, call out to him, just like David said. While you can, cry for help, and he will save you. Repent, believe the gospel. Christian, it's the same. Call out to the Lord in integrity, literally. Call out to him in truth. Call out to him in truth. Whatever your need, whatever your desire, remember Jesus Christ, our great king, lives to intercede for you. So go to him with reverence because he's high and lifted up, but with intimacy because he's near. Look at verse 21. My mouth will declare the Lord's praise. Let every living thing bless his holy name forever and ever. So we've come full circle, haven't we? David begins where he ended with a call for and a commitment to praise. And his song, as we've seen, it's beautiful. And it's fitting to be sung for the Lord. But you know what, brothers and sisters in Christ? We can sing an even better song than this. Why? Because you know Jesus. You know things about God that have been revealed in Jesus Christ that David did not know and understand. As good as David's song is, we can sing a better song about this great God and King. It celebrates the exact same things, but with greater precision, greater understanding, and greater knowledge of God because you know Jesus. You know Jesus. 
And you know that Jesus Christ is the perfect example of both the transcendent and the imminent. The God who is high and lifted up, but the God who is humble and draws near. The Holy Son of God draws near to save and love a people to the end. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, he has been given a name that is above every name. But upon rising from the dead, do you remember the first name that he identified himself with? Brother. To you and to me. Behold your great God and King. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father in heaven, what a, what, what a remarkable passage uh, of scripture this is. It, we celebrate you as the God who is high and lifted up and who is simultaneously near to us. What other God is like this? There is no one like you. Father, enable us to understand this better and to live into it, that we might delight in it and we might proclaim it to you, to the world around us, and to each other. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.